Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger. I am glad you're here. It is a great day to be alive. I haven't said that for a while, but it's an important reminder. Today's a great day to be alive. Let's be grateful we're alive. As we do periodically on this show on which we explore the connection between money, happiness, work, and meaning, I will once in a while read some of the essays that I've written in my public writing, my very public writing that is on my Substack, that is paulollinger.substack.com. The links are in the show notes. I've done this in the past when we've gone on vacation during the summer or at Thanksgiving. This is the spring break edition of Paul's essay reading. Today, I'm going to read Lessons from a Freshman Pimple, Why Talking About Money and Happiness Matters, and the reason it's called F.U. Money. I like that one. That's a really good one. Hey, I want to talk to you about this here, Substack. You know, Substack is a great blogging platform. Do they say blog anymore? I don't think people say blog anymore. It's, it's a great way to share your writing with the world. A lot of people do it on LinkedIn or on Medium, et cetera. But on Substack, you get to have a direct relationship with the reader. The reader subscribes, submits their email address, and you email them. And, and the reader can read your writing in their inbox or it can go to substack.com and read it there, offer comments, hearts, suggestions, et cetera. But what's good about it is that it gives the writer, the independent writer, the opportunity to reach an audience without having to go through a platform like Facebook, like Instagram, and the whims of the algorithm that determine how many people get to see their stuff. It also allows us to write without an editor telling us what we should be thinking, as opposed to allowing us to express our thoughts freely and without encumbrance, as one has to do when writing for a different publication. Substack also allows us to monetize our writing by empowering paid subscriptions. And I want to just offer a couple of thoughts about this because a few friends have mentioned to me, Paul, aren't you the the guy who uh, who made some money and is now writing about the meaning of money and, and happiness and all that and isn't asking for people to support your work, taking money from people who need it and could be giving it to charity and things like that? Yes, well, yes, and on some level and no. Here's the way I think about it. The paid subscriptions on Substack help me defray the costs, the significant costs of producing the Crazy Money podcast. And I haven't been clear about that and why I've accepted paid subscriptions. Honestly, the reason I opened it up to paid subscription was a couple of people just sent me money uh, without me even asking. I was like, wait a minute, people do that? And maybe if I do that, I can help uh, defray the costs of producing Crazy Money. So I did. And now because it's open, Substack automatically asks people who read the newsletter for money. And so I want to say a few things about it. First of all, over the last four years, 170 episodes of Crazy Money, I've spent in excess of $120,000 producing the podcast. It's a lot of money. It's no joke. And, you know, I have uh, been very, very fortunate to not work for 10 years. But regardless of how much money you have, if the financial vector is only pointed in one direction, expenditures like $120,000 will leave a dent. And so the people that help me produce this podcast, the editors, the bookers, the producers are excellent people whom I love and they're my friends and they're doing it not because of the love of their heart, but because uh, the work is helpful to them. And so I want you to know if you do subscribe to Crazy Money, I'm basically a conduit and you are sending money to hardworking, very intelligent people who are grateful for that contribution and the subsidized production of Crazy Money because it allows me to do more of that. All right, so that's how I think about subscriptions. So the writing on my Substack, Money and the Meaning of Life, is there a brand issue? Sure, they should both be called one or the other, either Crazy Money or Money and the Meaning of Life. 
But we're going to go with money and the meaning of life because when you see that title, you go, oh, I think I know what this might be about. When you see crazy money, you have no idea. From my Substack, paulollinger.substack.com, it's called Money and the Meaning of Life. The first article is called Lessons from a Freshman Pimple. It was originally published January 31st, the year of our Lord, 2023. And here we go. If I look closely in the mirror, I can still see a faint scar from a pimple that plagued my nose for most of October 1983. One morning, early in my freshman year, my reflection greeted me with a bulging red honker sticking off the end of my beak, blinking at the world like Rudolph Schnaz. My heart sank. I was 45 days into high school, had not yet found my social footing, and I was desperate for people to like me. I wanted more than anything for that pimple to go away. But it was round, hard, and unripe, so its demise was nowhere in sight, unlike the growth itself. This was a problem. Every grown-up knows that you can't rush a pimple. Sure, you can keep the area clean and apply a warm compress and some Clearasil. Regardless, you still have to wait it out. Give it a few days until it comes to a head, then destroy it with a pinch and a splat. But I didn't know this in the month that the safety dance was the number one song on the radio. My mother, who had seen lots of blemishes on my other siblings and presumably on herself, advised me to ignore it. But she was old, like 45 years old or something. So what did she know about the social pressures of ninth grade? No, this disaster demanded action. So I poked, I prodded, I squeezed that bulbous bastard until my eyes watered, but it just wouldn't break. Finally, out of utter desperation, I brandished nail scissors to cut off the pimple's top layer of skin. In almost all cases, amateur surgery is a bad idea. And this case was no exception. My sloppy incision turned an otherwise run-of-the-mill zit into a bloody, festering wound. Instead of going away within a week, it stuck around for the rest of the month. All because I just couldn't leave it alone. With every passing day, my embarrassment drove me to more desperate measures. One dreary Monday morning, my attractive homeroom tablemate, Mary Kay, asked me, Paul, at the football game on Friday, were you wearing concealer on your nose? What? What? No. I lied to her beautiful face. Every syllable, another log in the fire of my shame. Why would I do that? But of course I'd worn concealer. I had slathered on my sister's oxytin cover in a futile attempt to distract the world from my tragic flaw, then lied about doing so. Puberty was not off to a good start. First, do no harm. In time, my face healed, but the experience taught me a lot. The obvious lesson is that many problems, perhaps most, are best resolved by leaving them alone or applying very limited remedies. As I'm still learning, adult life requires determining which disagreements with a colleague, friend, or spouse require taking a stand and which do not. Hippocrates advised, first, do no harm. This implies that you should not mutilate yourself with nail scissors, but also that when confronting problems with others, you should choose the words or actions that do the least amount of damage. So if your boyfriend or girlfriend says something insensitive, your cousin posts something ugly on social media, or some crazy lady flips you off on the highway, be like Elsa and let it go. It will save you time, stress, and the road rage of someone most likely packing a Glock in her handbag. One of the best ways to let things go is to worry less about what other people think. If I could plant one certainty into my teenage brain, it's this. Nobody else really cares about your pimple. They only care about their pimples or other perceived imperfections like their height, body type, or the shape of their ears. As we get older, the things that stoke our insecurities change. Instead of stressing over acne, we worry about our status, 
money, and our relative social position. In an attempt to cover up this anxiety, we injure ourselves by overspending on junk that we don't need. We sacrifice economic autonomy on the altar of perception. And guess what? In the same way that your peers didn't really care about your pimples, they don't give a damn about your new car, fancy vacation, or mez belt, or lack thereof. They either have their own stuff, covet yours, or just don't care about this stuff because they've learned none of those things truly matter. Mary Kay didn't really care about my pimple, and I made it worse by trying to pretend that I was perfect. But I eventually learned to let it go, and I reaped the rewards. At a party a few years later, she let me touch her boobs. The end. This is a 100% true story, except for the name of my attractive table mate, whose identity I shall conceal in an effort (laughs) to keep my boob-touching confidential. She knows who she is. Anyway, I remember feeling this. I remember that zit so clearly, and I remember it being a tragedy. And I remember thinking my life was over because of this <laughs> this pimple that just showed up. I remember the shame and the guilt and slathering oxy on it and the hope that people would be distracted. And of course, what happens? The more we try to distract people from our flaws, the more we attract their attention to them. Ah, oh, God. Freshman pimples, what are you going to do? All right, by all means, write in. Shoot me an email, paul at crazymoneypodcast.com or post on my socials your favorite story about acne and insecurity from high school. Hey, speaking of my social media accounts, I want to thank all of you who have followed Crazy Money on Instagram or Crazy Money on Facebook or joined the Crazy Money Podcast listeners group on Facebook. I'm changing my social presence, uh, my global social media team, which is 17 hardworking professionals across four continents, have made it quite clear to me that trying to keep up two social media identities is self-defeating, and it's never going to help me get to scale in a way that I want to so that I can sell tickets for my comedy shows or attract listeners for this podcast. So what we're going to do is we're taking down the crazy money accounts on Instagram, and on Facebook. And I want everybody to follow me on Facebook at facebook.com slash Paul Ollinger. That's P-A-U-L-O-L-L-I-N-G-E-R. And on Instagram at slash Paul underscore Ollinger. I'll put links to those in the show notes. That way, I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep, there's gonna be one Paul Ollinger slash crazy money identity. And I'm not gonna try to keep up multiple social conversations because it's just self-defeating. And I don't really like posting on social anyway. I feel like, I wish there was an email-based social network. I feel like I would excel in that. I know how to format an email. I know how to, you know, like three paragraph structure, introduction, body, you know, like compelling message in the middle, uh, tidy summation and goodbye. And bam, I'm a good email writer. Not so good at doing bite dance, TikTok dances and crap like that. My rule for social media is how can I participate on social media without hating myself? Because every cry for attention on social media feels terribly inauthentic and at conflict with my self-identity of someone who who wouldn't impose himself on others. We're going to go to why talking about money and happiness matters, and then we're going to end strong with the real reason they call it FU money. All right, this is from February 14th, 2023. Hey, that's Valentine's Day. 
The title is Why Talking About Money and Happiness Matters, What We Can Learn from Bono, Brian Cox, and Jonah Hill. And by the way, I haven't seen the Brian Cox documentary, but I did see the trailer and I read an article about it. I did watch Jonah Hill's special that I refer to in as Stutz. It's well worth your while. And of course, if you're over 40 years old and you haven't read Bono's memoir, then you are officially out of Gen X. I'm expelling you. You are excommunicated. All right, here we go. For four years, I've been exploring the connection between money and happiness on my podcast, Crazy Money. Hey, that's you're soaking in it right now. I come at the topic mostly through conversations with highly accomplished people and authors who study fulfillment. Sometimes I wonder if the mission is worthwhile or whether I've reverse-engineered an idea that fits my experience of having made some money and wrestled with its often confusing impact on my life. Either way, I found it interesting when the universe, or maybe it was just my Facebook newsfeed, recently presented copious evidence that the struggle for money and status is an unavoidable human tendency that begs our understanding. Over the Christmas holiday, I inadvertently came across the work of three well-known artists who offer insights into their own struggles with money. In Bono's memoir, Surrender, Jonah Hill's Netflix documentary, Stutz, and the Channel 5 UK series, How the Other Half Live with Brian Cox, each of these masters of craft confesses to the difficulty they've had handling success or, or more specifically, how their challenges handling life drove them to succeed. It speaks volumes that on the second page of a 557-page book covering over four decades of U2's epic creative accomplishment, Bono writes this, There are some dirty little secrets about success that I'm just waking up to and from. Success is an outworking of dysfunction, an excuse for obsessive-compulsive tendencies. Success is a reward for really, really hard work, which may be obscuring some kind of neuroses. Neurosis, not plural, neurosis. It's not the only thing, but one of the primary conclusions this international superstar and humanitarian wants you to know, maybe all the accolades and fame are as much the symptoms of the quiet despair he's harbored since losing his mother at age 14 as they are the byproduct of his innate work ethic. Motherless Bono couldn't win the attention of his emotionally paralyzed widower father, so he set out to win the world's adulation instead. Is it an oversimplification? Maybe. But it makes sense. Similarly, in Stutz, Jonah Hill introduces us to his therapist, Phil Stutz, who has helped the actor, writer, and two-time Oscar nominee grapple with his childhood inadequacy that even a dazzling Hollywood career can't extinguish. Jonah sought Phil's help at a time when he had an incredible amount of success, but also an intense desperation to get happier. Despite his fame and serious Hollywood cred, Jonah still saw himself as a, quote, 14-year-old kid with acne who is very overweight and feels very undesirable to the world, unquote. Before Jonah found Phil's unique set of coping tools, he engaged in an if-then relationship with his career. I thought, if I got successful, they wouldn't see the fat kid. That's a quote, too. Jonah doesn't specify who they are, but he elaborates on his thinking that, quote, success and awards will absolve me of the pain of life, and when it didn't cure any of that stuff, it made me beyond depressed. Yeah, Jonah Hill still worries about who he was in middle school. So do I. Read my pimple article, after all. And I suspect, on some level, so do you. As Stutz told Esquire in an interview about the problems of movie stars, at the end of the day, after you get done flying private or being recognized, the problems are the same. Exactly the fucking same. 
Third, Brian Cox, the Scottish actor who grew up destitute but now makes millions portraying media magnate Logan Roy on HBO Succession, just released a miniseries for which his goal is to, quote, find out what money does for you, to me, how it affects all our lives. Because money is very much my own personal demon, something I've avoided confronting until now. All this talk by the most prosperous and prolific creators about the nature of success and its attendant bounty begs the question, why? Why are these wildly accomplished dudes bringing their struggle with accomplishment to the surface? They need neither the work nor our pity, and I doubt any editor, producer, or publicist begged them to talk about how hard it is to be rich and famous. Instead, I think these guys want to share a secret that only a small number of people who make it to the financial mountaintop get to learn, and that is wealth doesn't deliver the existential glee almost all of us believe it will. They want others to understand that beyond having enough and doing interesting work, our faith in the redemptive power of money and fame is wildly misplaced. Before I made money, I thought wealth would get me more than a big house and some cool cars. I actually believed, if only on a subconscious level, that it would liberate me from the slow burn anxiety I feel every day. That its attainment would scrub away my self-doubt and the persistent nagging feeling that I don't deserve to be happy. Looking back, it's easy to see how silly this logic is. I spent years working my ass off thinking, I'll show those motherfuckers. But I never stopped to specify who those motherfuckers were. And when the intense labor paid off in spades, I didn't feel any different. And I started wondering, uh, wait, which motherfuckers was I going to show? We think achievement will vanquish our straw man opponents who have been conspiring to keep us down, but we learn quickly that while money can buy all kinds of cool stuff and experiences, it can't buy freedom from the voices in our respective heads. Like Bono's dad and Jonah's nonspecific they, it's our negative self-talk that turns out to be those motherfuckers we've been trying to outrun the whole time. So maybe my quest to explore money and happiness isn't a contrived and self-indulgent exercise. Maybe if we were more self-aware of what success, however we define it, can and can't do for us, we could focus on the things that really do pay off. Or, more importantly, we could get to the core issues that hold us back from loving ourselves. Come to think of it, maybe my doubt about the insincerity of my mission is just one more of those motherfucking voices in my head. The end. This really did happen. Each of those creative pieces came out right about the same time. My buddy Trent Schofield, my Rhodes College classmate, my lawyer, my friend, my amigo, who I went to see Graceland for the first time with in October of 1987. Trent pointed out Stutz, the Stutz documentary on Netflix, and I'm glad he did. It's not a perfect documentary. It is a little bit, in places, it's, it's choppy. It should probably be a little less long. But Stutz is a really interesting cat. And he's helping... Jonah, who I respect as a major talent, he's helping him and all his clients get to some core truths. And I respect Jonah that much more for really sharing his struggle with people. Let everybody know that like, it's not a solution. Getting everything you want is not a solution. And it's not going to make you feel okay at the end of the day. You'll be okay when you choose to be okay. All right. Let's talk about the real reason they call it fuck you money. I published this in January, and this is a segment out of the manuscript that I've written over the last few years, and which I'm rewriting, that I will publish someday. I'm going to get you, Morgan Housel. The Psychology of Money has sold 3 million copies. Good for you. 
Morgan Housel, you'll recall, I interviewed a year and a half ago, I think, when his book came out. And his book is a juggernaut. And the irony is that there's so many things that he covers in the book that I talk about on the podcast and that that I've written in my own manuscript. So I'm going to reorg my my thoughts. We're going to put it out someday. It's going to be brilliant. This article came out January 17, 2023. It's called The Real Reason. It's called Fuck You Money. I say F you money. The real reason it's called F you money, one of the many secrets rich people won't tell you. Here's a quote to begin the article from Tom Petty in the documentary Running Down a Dream, directed by Peter Bogdanovich, which I watched no fewer than 15 times during pandemic. God, it is so good. Here's what Tom had to say. The success comes in you're on your own. There's no manual. One day they give you a check that you can't even relate to the zeros on the end. And you can get into a lot of trouble with that much money. Tom Petty. I went to business school because I wanted to make a lot of money. There were a lot of other legitimate reasons, but that was the driving factor. One day during first year, a classmate shared the news that the company where his dad worked had just gone public and now his dad had, quote, fuck you money. He elaborated, meaning he now has sufficient cash to tell his boss F you and live with the consequences. Wow. I said, blown away by the concept. That is amazing. At the time, I was carrying the current equivalent of $150,000 in student debt, so any degree of financial independence sounded pretty cool. But to be so rich as to not need a job? That was incomprehensible. Broke as I was, I didn't know what I didn't know about money. However, as too many lottery winners, young pro athletes, and yours truly learned after my own windfall— FU money is a lot more complicated than it sounds. While it grants the recipient a massive degree of career latitude, it also comes with rights, duties, and responsibilities, which, if not fully understood, will lead its owner down the wrong path. Not that anyone is going to tell you that. Consider your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. Peter Parker gets bit by a radioactive spider, thus endowing him with supernatural arachnoid capabilities. Isn't he lucky? Because now he does whatever a spider can, climbs skyscrapers, and catches thieves just like flies. He's in a whole new league. But those extraordinary capabilities also distort the relationship with his career and his co-workers. Once a person can swing from buildings and capture crooks with sticky wrist jizz, how will they tolerate flying coach class to Milwaukee for the 30th annual Packaging Materials Supply Chain Management Convention? Yes, we are recasting Peter as a mid-level logistics manager. He can't, and tolerance, especially late in a career, is a vital workplace skill. Maybe Peter doesn't make a big deal of it right away, but eventually he's going to let his lame, non-superhero supervisor know that he's effing Spider-Man, and Spider-Man don't go to no cardboard conferences. This is what it's like to win, earn, or otherwise acquire FU money. Having the ability not to work distorts one's relationship with work. Pumped up by the superpower of wealth, a person's ego starts to talk shit about works and dignities and their sneaky, duplicitous boss. Left unchecked, new money will start making decisions on its owner's behalf, and those decisions are rarely prudent. Of course, FU money is a tremendous privilege, but it's also a career detonator you don't even know you're carrying. Unless you purposefully embrace the ways work enriches your life, for example— By providing a place to contribute to the world among gifted colleagues, your professional future teaches one spark of indiscretion away from a meth lab caliber explosion. Because without even knowing it, FU money has slipped your mouth's safety lock to the off position, making it much harder to keep shut, especially if you were predisposed to run it in the first place. 
When your boss outlines the itinerary for the Milwaukee event, which she regrets she will be unable to attend, you'll find yourself thinking, wait a minute, I'm rich. This bullshit is optional. Here, you'll learn that FU money doesn't just grant you the right to say FU to your boss. It means that if you haven't thought very clearly about what your values are and who you want to be, you will tell your boss and maybe your spouse and other family members to fuck right off. Of course, you should take the high road. You could decline her invitation firmly but respectfully and plan a graceful exit to preserve professional optionality. But where's the fun and nuance when you can go nuclear? So you light up your boss in a conflagration of candor. Spittle flying, you call out her shortcomings with gerund-laced eloquence, documenting her hypocrisy and tyranny so thoroughly that you believe your coworkers will rally around you and place a crown on your head. Instead, they pull a bay of pigs and run for cover. Your opponent appears unfazed as she wipes the verbal guano from her chin, admires her filthy fingers, and replies with serpentine satisfaction, thanks for being so transparent. Then it dawns on you, this is the final entry on your LinkedIn profile. As Dr. Phil would say, how's it feel to be right? In a time of acute inequality, it is beyond taboo to talk openly about affluence. So instead of discussing the connection between our values and who we want to be when the money arrives, we leave it to the Kardashians to model wealth for us. No wonder so many newly rich people quit their jobs, bail on their marriages, and buy a bunch of superfluous crap superfluous is hard to say. If you don't believe this is an issue, try to envision a vast field on which 2.5 million individuals are each assembling their own IKEA desk without reading the instructions. Think of how many unstable and incomplete modular abominations would result. Now consider that in 2021, 2.5 million households in the United States achieved $1 million in net worth for the first time. And while there are all kinds of books on how to get out of debt or find the right credit card, there's no instruction manual on how to have money. This means that almost all of these newly minted millionaires will learn how to handle their bounty exclusively through trial and error. Most of these errors will be inconsequential, but some will be profound. In service of these fortunate, hardworking, good-saving people, some of whom will eventually achieve 100% career flexibility, I offer FU Money Lesson Number 1. Here it is. Just because you can tell your boss to fuck off, it doesn't mean that you should. The end. I hope these have entertained you. I hope that they've inspired some thinking in you. I hope that you'll spread the word by sharing with your friends, your other intelligent, insightful, curious friends who would find this writing and this podcast interesting and stimulating. We have a lot of great episodes coming up on Crazy Money. We're working on episodes around rich divorce. That one will uh, hit home to to a few of you. Uh, I will love to hear your perspective on it. Either way, we are all one degree of separation away from somebody who's gone through this, rich or upper middle class divorce anyway. We're working on an episode called, Is Private School Worth It? The Pros and Cons of Public Versus Private School, which I'm going to discuss with a panel of my fellow parents from around the country. And we're working on a college episode where we analyze the role of college today. What's the value of a college degree? To what extent should you choose expensive, fancy schools over your fairly priced local state school? And whether or not hiring a college admissions counselor is money well spent. Relevant stuff. 
for the life of our uh, striving, successful audience here on Crazy Money. Thanks for listening. By the way, folks, if you have not taken a second to rate and review this podcast, I would greatly appreciate your efforts in doing so. Also, please share this episode and please subscribe to my Substack, free or paid, whatever you want to do. If you want to support it, sharing it is every bit as valuable as paying for it. So please share the content we're creating here at Crazy Money and Money in the Meaning of Life Substack uh, with your friends who are curious and smart and would enjoy this kind of content. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.